Well, hello and welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. This week, we're going to talk about three subjects you'll love, economics, politics, and real estate. Yep, we've got lots of interviews from the Freedom Fest event in Las Vegas. Stay with us. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash real estate guys. Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Joining me, as always, co-host financial strategist, Russell Gray. Hey, Robert. We are just back from Freedom Fest, and boy, what an event it was. It was an amazing event. We got a chance to uh, meet all kinds of different people, and we like to get out whenever we can and find out what people are thinking. There's no doubt that uh, the conservative movement is growing in the United States, and we are, as real estate investors, always wondering, where's the money going? Where are the people going? What's motivating? them and understanding the conservative mindset is a big part of that right now. So there were lots of folks at this event from all walks of life with all different kinds of uh, issues and positions and thought processes. And one of the big things that uh, the organizers said is to remember everybody has a different perspective, a different point of view, be respectful. They had several debates where they took two sides of a, an issue and debated it back and forth. And it was really a very interesting event for those reasons. It was intellectually stimulating and very very insightful, and I think it was great, and you're going to get a chance to hear many of the great interviews we did while we were there. We had a chance to talk to literally dozens of folks, and so you're going to hear the highlights of those interviews uh, today on the program, rapid-fire uh, style, uh, even though the folks who, uh, most of the folks who you're going to hear are not sponsors of the program. Uh, I often ask them to give us uh, the follow-up information as a courtesy, so you'll hear some of that, and uh, it's going to be a, a great show. So here we go, live from Freedom Fest. 2010. And welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. We're broadcasting from Freedom Fest in Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, with me is uh, Jeffrey Verdon. And we've got a lot to talk about. How are you, sir? Good. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming. And thanks for being a part of our uh, interview today. Uh, one of the most important things for real estate investors is asset protection. And this is something you're uh, certainly well-versed at. Uh, tell us from, from your uh, perspective, what is someone who's, whether they're investing in real estate or anything else, uh, need to be uh, concerned with when it comes to protecting their assets? Well, many of the clients I see in my law practice come to me after they've been sued. And the reason they've been sued is because they've rented a property to somebody, they've been injured on the property, or something may have happened, hazardous waste issue. And when you drill down a little deeper and find out how title was structured to that piece of property, it was owned in their joint names or individual names, but what it wasn't owned in is an LLC or an S-corporation or some other limited liability document. It is amazing how many people will put property in their own name when there are these great vehicles uh, available. Is it just lack of education? What do you think it is? Well, I'm an estate lawyer, and in law school, we never learned about asset protection issues. You either became a litigator or you became a transactions lawyer. Estate planners focus on what happens after you die. I focus on what happens during your lifetime because you have more chances of being sued before you die. And as a result of that, you want to build the firewalls around the estate plan so that if they do get sued during their lifetime, they have an estate to retire on or one to pass over to their loved ones. And so not, not enough estate planning lawyers understand this, this risk issue. Most estate lawyers feel you can buy li uh, liability insurance policy, but as I tell my clients, liability insurance is likely to cover you if you fall off the roof. Right. Not if you hit the ground. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about estate planning because uh, there's some uh, changes. This is an interesting year for to be ta- to, to be in your industry. Yeah, this is the year to die. Yeah. yeah. I advise all my elderly clients, this is the year to go. If you're yeah. going to go, in fact, we, we had our first billionaire in this country die uh, in 2010, uh, and uh, uh, the government it, uh, has escaped being able to collect a substantial amount of tax from his estate. Good for him. But well, now, maybe not. They replaced the estate tax with an income tax, which people don't realize. Ah. You see, we, we have a press that doesn't stay on top of this stuff. When you die, there's no estate tax during 2010. But they take the basis you had when you died, and the difference between the basis and what you get for the property when the beneficiaries sell it, you have to pay an income tax on that. Now, there are certain basis adjustments they give you, but it's, it's, it's relatively modest, particularly if you have a large estate. Well, certainly when it comes to estate planning, you're, you're concerned about taxation, but you're also concerned about preservation of, of the assets. How do you decide how much planning you need to do as, a, as an investor, just as a person? Well, you have to really interview your client very carefully. There are people that believe it or not, may have tens of millions of dollars, and when they die, half of the estate's going to go in taxes, and they don't care what happens to that. They figure they, their kids are going to get a lot of money, more than they started with. Yeah. And my philosophy is most people have worked too hard to see their money go all the way back to Washington and have it spent in a way that may be totally antithetical to their beliefs. Whereas you can take and employ certain planning techniques where the family can decide how that money gets spent much more precisely than what the government will do. All legal. How much uh, complexity is there when somebody has investments that are offshore? Does that figure into their estate planning? We're finding more and more people going offshore. And and in fact, our asset protection platform is predicated upon an offshore trust platform because the firewalls that an offshore trust provides are much more protective than anything you might do here domestically. Most people who have gone offshore without the advice of a lawyer are doing so because they're trying to cheat the government. And ultimately, as we saw from the UBS case, uh, they get caught. Yep. Uh, but uh, the government doesn't care that you go offshore. This is something that people don't understand. They wouldn't print all the forms that people who have offshore transactions have to fill out and file with the Treasury if going offshore were illegal. Right. They just want you to tell them about it. So oftentimes, the not telling you about it is more draconian in terms of penalties than the actual act of going offshore. But for my practice, going offshore can be the difference between a case getting settled quickly and cheaply and the lawsuit continuing on for, uh, for a long time. Now here in Nevada, uh, they've passed an asset protection trust statute which applies to Nevada. And so if you live in California and you want to set up a Nevada asset protection trust, it's not going to work for you. But we, we opened a practice here about a year ago and we find that Nevada is a good, good place for us because uh, uh, there were a lot of people who made a lot of money back in the boon, the, the boon days, and now, uh, now the, 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 it's, it's all come home to roost. Well, and I know your practice specializes in uh, probably high net, net worth individuals, and they have a lot of uh, assets to protect and, and to think about. How is it that you counsel with someone uh, as to getting their estate plan to the, the place that it needs to be to be solid? Well, you have to first determine what are the client's objectives, and that, that may take several meetings. Most people aren't even sure what they want to do. What most people do not want to do is waste their money on, on taxes going back to Washington, D.C. and have it you know, spent in a way that they have no control over. So the larger estate owner typically is much more protective of his wealth and wants to preserve it. They want to protect it. And, and oftentimes life insurance, in fact, every major estate plan that I have ever done, as my memory serves me correctly, has had some element of life insurance. Sure. And there's some new developments in the life insurance industry that a lot of wealthy people may not be aware of. I talk about it here at the show. It's called premium financing leveraged life insurance, where a bank will loan you all the money you need 
to, uh, to finance your premium, and all you do is you pay the bank interest only rather than the heavy premiums, and then when you die, the bank gets repaid out of the, the, the insurance policy. And what that allows the, the person who needs insurance to pay their taxes to do is to carry the insurance at the minimal amount of cost, keep their money in their portfolio where they're earning much more than the cost of the financing, and then the most important factor is the bank is willing to wait until the individual dies before they get paid. So that provides all the cash the, the heirs need to pay the taxes at the minimum amount of cost. Most people don't mind life insurance. They just hate to pay for it. Right. Well, and you know, you see uh, when there are changes in an industry and entrepreneurs figure out a way to make things work, it's great to see that. But keeping up with it is the problem, which is why you need to have uh, someone looking out for your interest. How much uh, does it change? How often does this, this state law change? I mean, obviously, we've got this year that, that everyone's been, for, for years, we've been looking ahead to this year going, well, 2010, right? But, but then now what's going to happen? Well, this has been a very difficult year for the client and for the advisor because all the changes we're making now to take into account no estate tax in 2011, everything reverts back to the old ways, but in, with a tremendous, uh, tremendously higher amount of tax. In 2011, when you die, you have only have a $1 million exemption, and then above and beyond that, the tax is 55%. So our firm is built a little differently. We're a boutique firm, meaning we don't have a lot of clients every year, and we insist that if the clients work with us, they have to come in at least once a year, no more than 18 months, to make sure that everything they're doing is being done correctly. When you have a firm that you do, do 50, 100 trust and wills a month, it's very hard to keep up with the clients and to keep them in the loop on things. That's not, that's not the kind of practice I wanted to develop. All right. Well, if somebody has a question or wants to reach your firm, what's the best uh, way to do that, Jeffrey? We'll even pay for the telephone call. It's 800-521-0464 or they can send me an email at jeff at jmvlaw.com. All right. Well, it's certainly been a, a pleasure having you on the show, and thanks for the great information. My pleasure. Anytime. All right. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys Radio Network. More from Freedom Fest when we return. I'm your host, Robert Helms. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of the Real Estate Guys podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. Russ, what are you into these days? I've been into Peter Schiff's Crash Proof 2.0. So Schiff writes his book Crash Proof in 2006, predicting the real estate crash, the meltdown, and then he rewrites it in 2009, not rewrites it, but re-releases it with his update on what's happened since, which most of which came true, and what he expects to happen next. It's incredible. And you can get it right at audible.com for a free audiobook of your choice. Go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash real estate guys. You can pick Peter Schiff or anything else you'd like. That's audiblepodcast.com forward slash real estate guys. Hello, Robert Kiyosaki. Listen to the Real Estate Guys. They're wild and crazy, but they really know what they're talking about. And welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. Heard every weekend on this fine radio station and all the time at realestateguysradio.com. We are at Freedom Fest 2010, an amazing uh, collection of uh, speakers and authors and thinkers and folks who are here to learn more. And uh, we have a treat for you right now. Dave Fessler is joining us. He is the energy and infrastructure expert for the Oxford Club. He also has a uh, column that goes out uh, from Investment U uh, to nearly half a million folks. And uh, he's an electrical engineer. Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks to be here. So how does a guy who's an electrical engineer uh, for years end up doing what you do? Well, that's, there's an interesting story behind that, actually. Uh, the company that I worked for, their stock went from a dollar to $51 a share 
right around the time of the dot-com boom. Wow. Uh, in uh, 2000, 2001. And I decided uh, it was time uh, I'd had enough of this. So, And I'd had a lot of their stock. So I dumped their stock and gave my two-week notice. And uh, I thought I was going to uh, fly fish for the rest of my life. But I soon got bored with that. And eventually, uh, I have an interest in investing. I've always managed my own investments and spent some time doing that. Uh, hooked up with a newsletter publisher, uh, became a subscriber, and then got the idea in my head that somehow I could actually write this stuff and uh, sent them an article and I've been doing it ever since for four years so now I'm here at Freedom Fest at the invitation of uh, Dr. Mark Skousen uh, going to do an energy debate uh, tomorrow and then debating the consumer or business driving the economy Uh, that's our second debate on Saturday morning. Well, this is interesting. We had uh, Dr. Skousen on the show a few weeks back in anticipation of this event, and uh, this is kind of interesting the way this came out. You wrote an article, and then he had some some disagreements with the article, wrote a rebuttal article, and uh, now you guys are, are going to be doing a, a live debate. Tell us about uh, how that uh, how that all came about. Well, uh, I, I wrote an article for Investment U, and it's called The Paradox of Thrift, How a Better Savings Rate is fueling the recession. And this is an interesting idea anyway, that, that if you get, get your mind around, people saving more is fueling the recession. Yeah, and, and growing up, uh, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and we've all heard our parents say, spend what's left after saving instead of saving what's left after spending. Right. And of course, for the last several years, people have been doing just the opposite. They've been spending spending, 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 and when they ran out of money, they easy credit, they could go to the bank, get a second mortgage, home equity loan, and people were putting in pools and spending money they didn't have uh, on overvalued real estate, primarily. Yep. And now the chickens have come home to roost, so to speak, and this all has to be paid back. So the consumer is in shutdown mode, and they're the ones that can afford to do so are paying down debt, they're saving money, and they're just not spending the way they were two or three years ago. And consequently, uh, that's all backflowing into business. The consumer, and, and a perfect example of that is walking into the local shopping mall and just seeing how many stores are now vacant. The consumer isn't there buying what he used to be buying. He's buying food, gasoline for his car, clothing, and to the extent that he can afford to pay for it, shelter. Some of them can't even afford that, and are now, you know, so the foreclosure rates are going up. Something you guys are, I'm sure, intimately familiar with. But but that's really the point of my article. Now that he's doing what he should have been doing all along, saving, it's contributing to the lengthening of the recession, if you will. It's going to last a lot longer than everyone thinks it's going to last, because he's got a lot of debt that he's got to unwind. And it's the great consumer debt unwind right now is what's going on. Well, and it's interesting. You uh, came up with this uh, article, and then Dr. Skousen read the article, and his rebuttal was uh, exactly what you guys are going to be debating. He says, no, 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 it's not the consumer that, that drives it. It's it's businesses that drive the economy. Yeah, he, uh, Mark and I uh, are good friends, and uh, we have a lot of fun talking about this. And we did a previous radio debate uh, on this, actually. And I just can't get my arms around where he's coming from. He's an academian. He's a he's a, a brilliant economist, written many, many books, 20 or 25 books. But I'm a consumer. And when I look at it 
from a practical standpoint, the way most Americans do, businesses just aren't going to produce with not a known market for their materials. And whether it's a service or a thing, now there are exceptions to that, where Apple is driving and creating entire new markets. Right. But but that's that's an exception to the general rule, if you will. The average business that's out there, the small businessman, depends on the consumer to buy something. And he's not going to just start blindly producing or keep blindly producing if the demand isn't there. And he's not going to say, okay, pick a point in time. I think it's time. The recession's over. I think I'm going to start making stuff again. He doesn't do that. He waits until the demand, his inventory is so depleted that he can't afford to not ramp up production. The other thing that Mark fails to take into account, I think, periodically is in this period of time between where the demand was just so over the top and now where it doesn't exist, businesses, if they've spent any money at all, they've spent it on productivity improvements. So now they no longer need all the employees that they got rid of. He, he makes an argument that businesses will start hiring again. Well, businesses don't have to start hiring again because their productivity has gone up by leaps and bounds in the interim several years. That is going to contribute to a continued high unemployment rate in the 95 to 10% range, I think. And, and it's those people that once they're back to work and can spend again will drive continued or increased economic activity. You know, I imagine the people who are, you know, they're hunkering down, they're saving money, they're trying to put it away. They don't understand that they're not helping. They're, to your point, they're they're hurting by by locking those dollars away. They're not out there circulating. They're not creating jobs. They're not doing anything. And people think it's the right thing to do, uh, but but it's hard to get your mind around it. Yes, they think it's the right thing to do, and for them personally, it is the right thing to do. Right. But if we go back and look at the fifty thousand foot view, that isn't driving or going to increase economic activity. And the consumer uh, is the long-term average, I think, as a percentage of GDP, consumer spending was 65%. But for the last three or four years, it jumped to 70%. And it's that extra chunk, that overspending that occurred, and the reasons behind it, and you know, a lot of it had to do with taking money out of real estate that was overvalued to begin with has driven us to the point now where that all now has to be unwound and reabsorbed. And I have a friend that's in the shipping business, and the inventory levels that the warehouses have for the big box stores are at record lows. And he sees, uh, just judging by the size of the stacks of empty shipping containers at the ports, he can tell how much, I I mean, it's it's sort of a, a silly example, but he knows that business isn't booming because those would be on ships being loaded up to come back here to unload goods and they're just sitting there empty. Well, you know, what's great about just this topic and really a lot of what's happening here at Freedom Fest is this healthy debate. I mean, for uh, you and Mark to be able to go at this is going to is going to be great because there are so many different opinions and ideas. And, and I think that's really what this is about, is trying to understand different perspectives. Now, let's talk about real estate for a minute. You uh, wrote a column back in, in 2009 about kind of what was going to happen in the commercial real estate market. And it was uh, didn't go unnoticed. In fact, uh, Glenn Beck picked up on the article and ended up uh, having you on the show. Tell us about uh, about that prediction of yours and where that sits. Well, I, you know, I saw what was happening in, in residential real estate, and I, I thought to myself, something like this is going to have to be happening in, on the commercial side, simply because the residents, the consumers, weren't spending, were slowing down, 
So what there's there's going to be vacancies in the malls. Yep. And the mall rents come due, and the malls run on very thin margins, and the mall owners. And if they've got you know more than a four or five percent vacancy, they're in deep trouble. And now the banks are having to refinance. Well, the, the mall owners are having to refinance their loans on the malls. And the banks look at them and say, your vacancy rate is beyond where it needs to be for you to be able to make payments. Yep. So you need to put pony up some money. We're not going to refinance 90 or 95%. We're only going to refinance 80% of your outstanding uh, money that you owe. And so I thought, geez, I, I've got to do some research on this. And when I did and found some of the extraordinary rising vacancy rates, not only in malls, but in commercial office buildings, I could see there was another big bubble and crash coming in commercial real estate. So I wrote an article about it, again, in, in our Investment U. Uh, in fact, I, you can go back and read it in InvestmentU.com archives. And uh, Glenn Beck was wondering the same thing I was wondering, had his staff look into it and said, hey, this guy just wrote an article. Uh, and he said, well, get him in here. Let's talk to him about it. So I was on his show, uh, I think, last April 24th. So uh, it was uh, gratifying to me. And, and very telling that here's a, a national figure saying, why isn't anybody talking about this? And, and of course, the, the, the problem in commercial real estate still exists. Yep. Go into a mall today, and you'll still find very, very high vacancy rates. Well, you know, the one thing we really haven't talked about, Dave, is kind of your area of expertise, uh, energy and, and infrastructure. And uh, I, I think there is definitely kind of a, a real estate angle there. We, When we look at a marketplace, we always want to understand what the infrastructure is current and planned and so forth. But let's talk a little bit about energy and about what, what you see happening there and, and how that's going to affect us and the economy and all that. You know, there, there's many investment opportunities in, in all forms of, of energy and infrastructure. I think that we talked a little bit earlier about unemployment and how do we reduce unemployment in this country? Well, the government's trying its darndest by expanding and hiring people, but you know, bigger government isn't the answer. Right. It's private sector unemployment and or private sector employment that we really need to talk about and have hiring. The problem is existing businesses, because they've increased their productivity, don't need more people. So what we need are businesses, new businesses, that don't exist today, yep. that initially uh, are going to have a fast-track growth and hire people, hire workers, uh, and reduce the unemployment rate. And that area, in my opinion, is energy and energy infrastructure. Uh, and, and the change from a fossil fuel-based economy to one that's not based on fossil fuels, of course, is a 50 to 100-year transition. Gasoline and diesel and coal is going to be with us for a long, long time, certainly long after you and I are no longer here and perhaps even our children. But eventually, and, and, and the peak guys will argue this, eventually it'll run out. The earth is round, surrounded by a vacuum, and there is only so much oil and gas. Yeah. And whether you agree with the climate change guys and, 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 and the greenhouse gas guys, whether that's affecting things or not, is really uh, not the issue. The issue is the finite nature of the resource. And because we have this newfound resource in the United States. Uh, the fellow this morning was talking about uh, a miracle has occurred in the United States yep. in terms of shale gas. Steve Forbes mentioned the same thing in his talk this morning. I've been writing about this for the last two years saying let's get off the dime, 
let's create cars that run on natural gas, change the a lot of the, the bus fleets and the tractor trailers over to run on natural gas. It's not any more difficult from an engineering standpoint to design a car or a truck that runs on natural gas than it is to design one that runs on gasoline. We have the technology in this country. It's This country was built on, on the greatness and the technology, uh, the technological advantage of the people who live and work here. And this is simple to do. And the problem is the lack of a national energy policy and the incentives to put in place to get the ball rolling on that. Steve Forbes said it again. Uh, we could be a net exporter of natural gas, liquid natural gas. And what would that do to the balance of trade? You know, instead of spending $500 billion a year on foreign oil, now we're actually getting something for something that we have here. And, you know, that's just one simple way, uh, and, and without oversimplifying it, that we can completely turn things around in this country. And just think of all the people that it would take to put in the infrastructure to refuel cars uh, with natural gas. All the 165,000 service stations in the country need to be modified to accommodate not only gasoline vehicles, but natural gas and, uh, and ultimately electrics. Uh, and, and that takes people, it takes new companies with new products. There's just a tremendous opportunity, I think, in, that, in both the energy and energy infrastructure sector to move this country forward. Uh, and make us the powerhouse that we once were. No pun intended there. No, not at all. You know, it's interesting. Though, energy comes up, and uh, today was mentioned that that's one of the things people don't like to pay for, but they certainly like the, the service. And we, as Americans, certainly have complained about gas prices. But if you look around internationally, our gas prices are, are pretty low. Yeah, part, part of the problem is the uh, federal fuel or the federal gasoline tax has not changed, has not gone up since the early 1990s. It's 18 cents a gallon. It's been that way for the last uh, 15 years or more. That's part of the problem. I don't like more taxes any more than anyone else. But if you use it, you should pay for it. If you use the roads, if you're buying gas, and, and by virtue of uh, driving on the roads, decreasing their life, then you should be paying for that. And whether it's higher gasoline tax or tolls or a combination of the two, uh, I think the person that doesn't drive or uses mass transit should pay for that. He shouldn't be paying for the roads. The problem now is the, the federal highway fund is bankrupt. And, and, in fact, they're now having to subsidize two-thirds of the money that gets sent out to states uh, from the fund with monies from the general fund because the gasoline tax no longer covers the expenses. And, and there's a perfect example of something that could easily be done uh, a little bit over time. The problem is it hasn't been politically popular to do any of this stuff. And uh, I think it, Congress needs a wake-up call to uh, action to deal with our energy issues. I think it's the most important issue that we have. I'm a little biased. I write about it. Uh, but I think, you know, Healthcare. look at the mess they made of that. They have an opportunity to do something about our energy and make us energy self-sufficient and improve the economy at the same time. And I think it's time they uh, get off their collective duffs and, and do something. Now, you mentioned the, uh, the shale. Uh, from where you sit, what other technologies are there coming down the road when it comes to, to energy? Do you see anything else out there on the horizon? Well, you know, certainly uh, the ability to hydraulically fracture shale, and I live in Pennsylvania, I'm sitting right on top of the Marcellus Shale where I live, and that's 5,000 feet underground. 
the Utica Shale is 15,000 feet underground and potentially even larger than the Marcellus. Uh, but there's technological advantages coming out all the time. Directional drilling, being, being able to steer these drill bits, which of course is now underway with the relief wells uh, yep. to try and stem this, this PP uh, uh, mess down in the, in the Gulf, uh, is a technology that once they get down to the shale level, they can steer this bit uh, within a couple of feet of accuracy miles away from the beginning of the, you know, the top of the drill hole. Uh, and, and so there will be additional technologies that will come along that will allow additional extraction of fossil fuels from depleted wells or wells that through conventional technology no longer produce oil. They'll yep. be able to get additional oil out of there. And, and the reality is in order for the United States to not have an energy gap where our needs can't be met by all the supplies that we have, and I'm talking a combination of fossil fuels and alternatives, we need to exploit all of this. We need to do offshore drilling. We need wind power. We need geothermal. We need solar. And there's always new advances uh, coming along in all these technologies. They're building bigger wind generators. They're putting them offshore where people can't see them because that's sometimes an issue for, for some folks. And solar panels are getting more efficient by the, the week, it seems. And now solar, within six months, will be cost-effective in terms of comparing it to uh, building a coal plant, for instance. So when you've reached grid parity, when, when you've got to that point with solar, it's just going to take off like a rocket. I just finished writing an article about that. Well, speaking of which, uh, Dave, uh, you have a lot to say, and uh, folks are interested. Uh, what's the best way for them to uh, find out what you're doing at InvestmentU? Uh, you can you can go on to InvestmentU.com and uh, put in your email address. You'll get a daily dose of uh, my writings and, and four or five other editors that we have uh, that write on a, var a variety of subjects. Mine's energy and infrastructure. Uh, I also write for the Oxford Club. And I have a premium newsletter that they publish called the Peak Energy Strategist that gives specific investment examples and ideas to, uh, to the subscribers. So, And that would be the OxfordClub.com. Those are the two main places you can find me. All right, Dave, thanks so much for your time today. Great information and illumination. We appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. All right, you're tuned to the Real Estate Guys Radio Network. We're here at Freedom Fest in Las Vegas, Nevada. More when we come back. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Want to fix up houses and sell or rent them for a profit? Believe it or not, the hard part isn't fixing them up. It's finding a cheap fixer-upper with real upside potential. Banks are giving great deals, but only if you can buy in bulk. To find out how you can get plugged in, order the free report, Buying Value, Profiting from Distressed REO Properties. Send your email to wholesale at realestateguysradio.com. Many homes are available for as low as $20,000 or less. You couldn't build them for that. Get the report to learn more. Call our resource hotline at 888-510-6838, extension 105, or email wholesale at realestateguysradio.com. Hi, this is Kendra Todd, winner of The Apprentice, and you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. And welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. We are at the Freedom Fest 2010 in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada. And it is my pleasure to introduce you to a gentleman whose work I've been reading for a lot of years. Uh, he is the legal counsel for a great organization called the Sovereign Society. And uh, boy, what an amazing background he has. He's an attorney and a former U.S. congressman. Please welcome Bob Bauman. How are you, sir? Thank you, Robert. Very much to be very happy to be with you. So uh, tell us what the, what brings you here and what the, what the latest goings on are. Well, Freedom Fest, as you know, has been going on several years 
And uh, we've, this is the first year that the Sovereign Society has had an exhibit booth and also a, a schedule of speakers. And we felt uh, from all the reports of the past meetings that this was the kind of meeting that we wanted to be at. We're basically a uh, very much libertarian, uh, conservative, although some people say those are mutually exclusive <laughs> positions. Uh, that's part of, sort of our philosophy. And we deal with offshore investment and asset protection, second citizenship. So the Freedom Fest was a natural for us. That's why we're here. Well, I tell you, we learned about Freedom uh, Fest through Sovereign Society. So uh, oh, it's, well. all, it's all working out. It's our You're first very year, welcome. Uh, there is, well, absolutely. It's been, uh, it's been really great. In fact, you got to uh, speak today on the panel with uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, the early, the morning session. And yeah, with uh, Steve Forbes, I was very honored. You were on the panel with Mr. Forbes. Uh, and, uh, boy, I thought that was a, a real good way to set the tone for the event this morning. Well, I noticed they were uh, boasting him as possibly candidate for uh, president. But, you know, I'm from Maryland, and I don't think a vice president from Maryland would be in order after the last one we had. <laughs> <laughs> although, well, although I like Spiro. He was a nice guy. Well, you know, speaking of, of uh, politics, uh, and not even in your bio here that uh, you were a, a congressman, served uh, the country in the 70s. That's true. We try to keep the fact that I was in Congress relatively secret. It doesn't really raise your uh, reputation these days to be associated with the U.S. Congress. Well, clearly from uh, from what, what you teach and, and your writings and, and uh, all the research you do, you have done a, a tremendous service for a lot of folks. I know that one of the topics that you're going to cover here uh, is, uh, as I think you said today, getting out of Dodge. Well, that's one way to describe it. Um, a lot of people uh, are thinking in terms of needing an escape hatch because of the developments in the United States. And uh, one of uh, the suggestions our organization, the Sovereign Society, makes is to have, even if you don't leave the United States, and we don't advocate that unless it's absolutely necessary, but even if you don't want to live abroad, have, say, 25% of your assets, cash and bond, in outside the jurisdiction of U.S. courts and of the IRS, just as a protection. Uh, we all know that the powers of government have been increased enormously under both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, I hate to quote uh, uh, George Wallace, but the, the, he always used to say there's not a dime's worth of difference. And now it's not a billion's worth of difference between the parties, unfortunately. So we suggest some of your money, some of your uh, investment should be outside of the United States just for protection and as a safety valve if you should need it. I mean, we all know the history of many countries, uh, particularly during the Second World War, but even more recently, that seemed to be perfectly stable. And the next thing you know, troops marched in, people were left with no means to support themselves. They became refugees. I hope that day never comes for America. But with the trends being the way they are, you can't be too safe. Well, and, you know, we will speak in front of an audience and ask people, now, who thinks it's risky to invest outside of the U.S.? And there will be hands that go up. And then you say, well, who thinks it's risky to have all of your economy tied to one nation's currency and, and government? And a whole different set of hands to go, go right, up. And so right. it's a big world. There's more opportunity just in the, inside our boundaries. Well, you know, I hate to quote Wendell Wilkie, the uh, liberal Republican candidate for president in 1940. Shows how old I am that I quote this history. <laughs> but he wrote a book called One World. In his day, it meant one world government. In our day, uh, one world is, I think, a description of the opportunities that lie outside the United States borders investment opportunities, despite the fact that there's been, for instance, a lot of bad publicity for Switzerland because of the UBS affair. And it was well-deserved in the case of UBS, what they were doing evading taxes. But Switzerland still has a much stronger 
financial privacy law, even after all of this. And in the United States, most Americans don't realize there is no financial privacy remaining. The Patriot Act has completely removed it. And bankers here are forced to act as spies on their clients. That's the way it is. And most people don't know that. And that's a total change from when I was a kid, when bankers represented their clients. So that's another reason to go offshore, greater privacy that in some countries like Switzerland, uh, Panama, other places, that's not available in the United States. And, and you know, it really, I was active in my youth as chairman of the American Conservative Union and the Young Americans for Freedom, both groups. And it pains me now to, in, in my old age, if you want to call it, to be advocating that Americans might want to leave our country. But it's, it's, a, it's a recognition of the realistic situation we face. You know, it's, I read something where there was something like five times as many people who renounced their citizenship in 2009 as the year before. And it's the most we've had in, in a long, long time. And, and that's an extreme measure, for sure. Yeah, right. But I think it's, a, it's an indication that, that people are kind of fed up. Even, even the numbers that renounce their citizenship, and it's, it's probably a couple thousand every quarter. It's not a huge number. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is that every year, there's an estimate of several million Americans leaving the United States, not ending their citizenship, but choosing to live abroad. And the interesting thing, and uh, Zogby did polls on this, several other uh, surveys showed that while you would think that maybe they were going to be older Americans who were retiring abroad or uh, for some reason leaving, the uh, mean age was in the 30s, young 30s, uh, young people with families who apparently uh, concluded that as perhaps entrepreneurs or investors and people who wanted to protect their future, uh, they wanted to leave at an early age. Now that doesn't speak very well for the trends in this country. Right, yeah, and I think there's also this shrinkage of the world and that's so many uh, of the people who have jobs today that are, that, are, that are pretty mobile. They can work where they have an internet connection, they can work as they travel. Uh, I think that maybe also factors into why people would consider, wouldn't have considered it before. Now there's just one more reason why, well, I don't really need to be on this soil all the time. No, the technological advances in the internet and, and email and so on have made not just uh, uh, living in the United States easier, but uh, you can communicate with your banker in Vienna just as easily as you can your banker in Chicago, depending on where you live. And there may be six hours difference, but it's not something that can be, but in the old days, you know, in the Pony Express, none of that could be done. And, and this has been given us a freedom uh, that uh, most people don't take advantage of. Uh, it's, it's something that the government, per se, hates, because here's this one world of uh, uncensored activity, uh, people transferring funds back and forth across and investing and doing things. And while we have to report under certain restrictions that the government requires, generally this gives a much, free, much freer ability to make money, to invest, to communicate and so on. And most Americans, I don't think, take the full advantage of that when they should. Now, uh, you obviously spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff, not only that, but writing about it. Very prolific author, big contributor to uh, the A-letter that uh, goes out from Sovereign Society. When do you have find time to put all that together? Well, you know, uh, I'm at an, sort of an advanced age now. I'm, I have a nine grandchildren, four children. Wow. Uh, so a, a lot of family that, that uh, I certainly cherish. But uh, they say old folks ought to keep busy by, and their mind busy. So I spend most of my day uh, not only writing or uh, answering inquiries from our members. We have about 26,000 members and our mailing list of 350,000 emailing. So we, we get a lot of inquiries, and at this Freedom Fest 
Uh, I've met a lot of the people that I've met only through email, and it's an interesting feeling that goes back and forth because a lot of the people, as you said very kindly at the opening, have been reading my stuff. Yep. And when you're sitting there at a computer by yourself all alone, in the you figure, what does this really mean? Does that Usually I hear when people disagree. Right, but right. It's, it's nice to meet the people that find what I put on paper is good. No, well, we sure appreciate it. Boy, a great, uh, great body of work. And uh, what's the easiest way for someone who's uh, not had access to, uh, to to what you write about to, to find out about it? Well, I, probably the easiest way is what we've been discussing, and that is the Internet. www.sovereignsociety.com uh, would be uh, the place to go to. And uh, Google Google Sovereign Society, if you can't remember that, and uh, click on that, and we'll, our staff will be glad to assist anybody who wants information or uh, publications or any anything else. Uh, we, we try to be a service organization. I think we have that reputation. You sure do. Bob Bobman, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you, Robert Helms. I'm really glad to be with you. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys Radio Network live from Freedom Fest 2010. Our uh, guest is Vernon Jacobs, and uh, Vernon uh, specializes in international taxation. Boy, this is a big topic. Welcome to the show, Vernon. You're welcome. Now, uh, you know, you here. do a lot of work with the uh, Sovereign Society? Well, during its formative years, I was their tax advisor. All right. So now a lot of people, you know, not just uh, who listen to our show, but at this event and other places are, are interested, obviously, in being smart about taxes, saving taxes, paying as little as they can. Uh, tell us about uh, what, what you do to help in that regard. Well, for legal reasons, I can only help people to be compliant with the U.S. tax law. If they want to be non-compliant, they're on their own. Well, they're listening to the wrong show. No, we so, want to do it by the rules. Well, I understand the motivation to be non-compliant because compliance is expensive and frustrating and time-consuming. But the people I deal with are willing to do that. So... Um, some of the people I deal with want to invest offshore or they want asset protection from litigation. Uh, an increasing number are looking or hoping for some degree of asset protection from their own government. That may or may not be something that can ever really be achieved. Uh, many of them are people who have job work opportunities outside the U.S. And more and more entrepreneurs, it seems to me, are finding opportunities in other countries. And so then they get in situations where should they form a corporation, what kind of corporation, should it be an LLC, and the questions go on and on. And you know, uh, those very questions are things you answer as a citizen of any country investing in that country. As soon as you go across a border, it's got to be infinitely more complex. It depends on the complexity of your own tax system and on the complexity of the tax system in the country where you're going. So if you're going, say, from the U.S. to Australia or Canada or the U.K., Germany or France or other major countries, including Japan, you're going to run into double complexity. If you go from the U.S. to a, a, a low-tax haven, or a uh, that would be a country with no income tax. So that might include a country that has, let's say, a value-added tax or sales tax, like the Bahamas, yep. uh, but no income tax. So you still you have the one level of tax complexity rather than two. But you still have to deal with one as long as you want to continue to be either a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident. Now, we have uh, listeners from uh, more than 40 different countries, but primarily uh, folks in the United States. And uh, when it comes to international taxation, you were explaining that uh, before we started, there's really two areas. Can you talk about that? You know, basically, you divide international tax into either inbound or outbound. Okay. And there are a number of professionals who deal with foreign persons coming into the U.S. to set up businesses or to invest here or, or coming to live here. 
And then there are people like me who deal mostly with people who are moving money outside the U.S. or they are physically moving and living outside the U.S. but retaining their citizenship or resident status. And then you have the people who are entrepreneurs um, who see business opportunities in other countries. An entrepreneur basically goes where the opportunities are. And within the past 10 years, there's just been a mind-boggling change in the ease of access to get acquainted with and, and become involved in other countries. Boy, isn't that true? And then for a, a lot of different reasons, I think if we look, say, in the real estate market, prices are down, sales are down. That's not true everywhere. There's places uh, throughout the world where there's strong real estate markets. And so just from that aspect, your real estate investor, you might be looking at uh, another country, or maybe you figured there's good opportunity there for the type of product that, that you yeah. invest in. Not to take away from your favorite jurisdiction, but one of my clients is building a home and a substantial development project in Ecuador. Ah, okay, great. Heard good things about Ecuador. Well, and he had researched almost all of the Latin American countries, and that's the one he came up with. So let's talk about uh, this this uh, idea that if you're a citizen, say, of the U.S. Now, the United States, of course, I'm no tax professional, but that's why we have you here. Is one of the places where we're taxed as U.S. citizens on our worldwide income, any, any money that we make anywhere. But there's this idea of there being a tax treaty between two countries, and that's both good and bad, isn't it? Generally, a tax treaty is good in the sense that it eliminates certain problems of double taxation. Treaties with um, the G20 countries, uh, re refer to them loosely, countries similar to the G20, yep. usually involve some reduction of the withholding rate on dividends. And in most cases, whatever the withholding rate is, is actually what the tax is going to be. Because few people will file a return to get a refund or work through the mechanics of another country's taxes to see if the withholding is too much. So um, divid, uh, treaties will deal with the treatment of interest. They'll deal with issues, uh, particularly of multinational corporations doing business in multiple countries, defining things like what, what represents um, uh, having a permanent establishment in a particular country and being subject to their laws. So, you know, yeah, the treaties usually are to the benefit of the citizens of both countries. And so part of your due diligence, if you're going to go look uh, outside of your uh, country, your own country, is to figure out is there a tax treaty in place and what are the ramifications of that? Yeah, and you'll usually find that if there's no significant income tax in another country, there won't be a tax treaty. There might be a tax information exchange agreement or a mutual legal assistance treaty, um, mainly aimed at helping the IRS, uh, and usually a quid pro quo for some other benefit that you know the other country wants. But you know if they don't have another, if they don't have an income tax there's no point in having an income tax treaty. Right, exactly. All right, well, uh, let me ask you this, Vern. Uh, if someone wants to get a hold of you, learn more, uh, get part of the education that uh, that you share, what's the best way for them to do that? If they can remember my name, it's vernonjacobs.com, and on which there is a, uh, well, almost 50 articles dealing with different issues of uh, international taxation. All right. Well, that's a great resource there. VernonJacobs.com. Vern, thanks so much for your time today. You're quite welcome. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys Radio Network. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Stay with us. Hey, Russ, wake up. We've got a show to do. 
Huh? Oh, sorry. I was just having the most awesome dream. I found low-cost rental properties that cash flow in a strong job market with prices that didn't fall through the floor during this great recession. Wow, that is awesome. But, you know, you don't have to dream to find a market like that. We're going on a field trip there in just a few weeks. Really? Where are we going? To Dallas, Texas. It's a huge market with great infrastructure and lots of people. Prices are low and rents are strong. And with today's low interest rates, properties cash flow great. And did you know Dallas is projected in the top three of all job markets for 2010? Plus, Texas is the number one rated state for doing business. That's amazing. When is it? That's the best part. It's up to you. We have several dates scheduled, so you can go when it's convenient for your schedule. No matter which weekend you pick, there'll be tours of different submarkets and property types and meetings with local experts, including developers, agents, and property managers. That sounds great. Well, hurry up and register because space on field trips is always limited. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events or call 888-GUYS-RADIO for more information. That's realestateguysradio.com or 888-GUYS-RADIO. Hi, this is Kim Kiyosaki. I'm the author of Rich Woman, and you are listening to The Real Estate Guys. And welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. We're at Freedom Fest 2010. Lots of great stuff going on and a chance to uh, interview some amazing people. And uh, we've got one of them right here. I'd like to introduce you to uh, Robert Barnes. How are you, sir? Absolutely. Good to be here. Hey, it's great to have you uh, on the show. You guys have uh, a pretty uh, interesting and different law practice. Tell us about uh, what you guys do. Sure. We do uh, a criminal tax defense. We do white-collar de- uh, criminal defense. We also do uh, investment fraud recovery for people who've invested uh, internationally or domestically, but particularly people who are defrauded in various international investments, including uh, real estate investments that uh, that go south because the people who uh, were doing it weren't exactly being honest or trustworthy. Uh, and then we also do civil rights representation. So various First Amendment representation in any kind of case involving uh, misconduct by the state. Now, the firm's only been around less than 10 years, but the New York Times said that of the four most significant criminal tax indictments brought by the government this past decade, that your firm, Bernhoff Law, defended three out of four of those, and, and by the way, won all three. That is correct. Uh, typically, in criminal tax are the most difficult cases to win in the country. Uh, the government at jury trials win about 95% of the time. We put together our firm because we believe there was a way to practice this area of law better than was done by the typical or conventional or corporate defense lawyer, and we've had an acquittal rate of 50% or better during our tenure tenure. So it's been a, it's been a great run, uh, but it's about having the skill set and having the acumen and having the, uh, the knowledge and the wherewithal and the dedication to, to uh, make it work. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I would imagine that uh, since you've been this far down the road with these kinds of cases, you probably learned some of the things people can proactively do to keep themselves out of this situation. What the, what can you recommend there, Bob? Absolutely. There's really two different aspects. One is that everybody's going to be subject to more uh, harassment by the government over the next 10 years due to the economic conditions that we currently face. Uh, offshore investments are increasingly being targeted for tax audits and criminal prosecution. A lot of conduct that really is innocent conduct is now being labeled criminal even when people have relied on lawyers and accountants uh, in order to do their financial planning or real estate business structuring. So the uh, so part of it is just people being cognizant and aware that what used to be okay, the government's going to take an increasingly disdainful look at. And increasingly, they're going to subject particularly successful people and uh, international investments to unusual scrutiny. Uh, and so that's part one of the, uh, of the situation. Part two is uh, obviously being careful with who it is they invest with, uh, using due diligence. One of the things 
people are increasingly retaining us to do is to do due diligence in advance of their investment. Uh, that a lot of people rely upon uh, uh, special deals or special programs where people say keep it confidential or keep it private. And really, uh, there's ways in which they can hire an attorney, keep everything they're doing under the privilege, and keep their information privileged, and find out exactly whether a particular investment structure is going to be kosher, both in the view of the IRS and in their own ability to recover and keep their money and make the profit that they're entitled to. Well, let's talk about the, the last one first. Obviously, uh, when, when someone's looking at an investment, they might be starry-eyed about all the good possibilities, but obviously what a good lawyer does is looks at the what-ifs of what could go wrong, and yet people have a hard time justifying maybe spending money up front to do due diligence. It's an ounce of prevention, isn't it? Absolutely. It's critical to do that due diligence in advance. It gives you peace of mind, if nothing else, but it also secures that investment. Uh, we've had lots of people who have been defrauded by international investment fraud schemes. It's very difficult to recover the money. We've had a lot of success uh, for a variety of people recovering that uh, money, uh, over 50% success rate in those cases, but it's very difficult. You have to be able to reverse engineer the situation, and part of being uh, the advantage of being uh, on the criminal defense side is you see how you can unravel uh, any kind of fraud uh, and, and unravel what really is fraud versus what isn't fraud. And the, uh, so the, that's critical to do it so in advance, particularly once you're investing a certain amount, if you're investing more than $100,000 uh, or you're investing a million dollars, once you get into the high six figures and the seven figures, it's worth it to spend $10,000, $25,000, whatever it may cost in prorated to the investment to make sure you feel satisfied about who you're investing with, the legal environment you're investing with. I'll give a classic example, represented a client who uh, thought he put his money secure in, in Austria. Did no Austrian banking laws uh, and Austrian civil laws allow people to do private confidential suits in Austria, in Austria without any rights to discovery, and he may lose all of his money due to this, the nature of the civic dispute because he can't prove his case uh, because of the nature of the Austrian legal process. So you need knowledge of the legal process to know your remedies and rights. You need knowledge of who it is that's doing the investing, who it is you're giving your money to, uh, and you need to know the, uh, the domestic legal environment for how they're going to interpret that, those international investments, both from a tax perspective and from any other perspective. Now, Bob, obviously you have clients that are uh, investing in all kinds of different places. Is it your practice to also work with counsel in these other jurisdictions when it comes to these kind of cases? Uh, absolutely. Well, we've worked with counsel in over uh, 30 different countries. Yeah. And, and you have to. You have to become knowledgeable. We travel internationally frequently so that we become familiar and we can establish rapport with the right kind of counsel. People who have the right kind of connections but are not too connected. Uh, people who are vested but not too vested because a lot of like the island countries and the Caribbean countries and even true in the Asian and European countries uh, we for example tracked down a lawyer that was a well-known British barrister turned out he was the one enabling a lot of the fraud on behalf of his clients so you have to know or against his clients as the case may be uh, ended up in a nice little house in Monaco but we tracked him down and got some remedy but it's it's difficult to do that so you really need to know who you're doing business with and you got to have local contacts Absolutely. you got to know the uh, the local terrain or you're uh, in difficult now let's talk a little bit about this uh, idea of uh, you know obviously the government uh, has a voracious appetite for tax dollars and all of that and yet we know there's people that have legitimate uh, investments and, and businesses and for whatever reason become embroiled in these situations. You guys uh, represented a kind of a high-profile case, uh, Wesley Snipes. Talk about that. Sure. Uh, Wesley had investments around the world. The government came in and indicted him on two felony charges and six misdemeanor charges. The, in his particular case, they alleged that he hadn't paid any tax on the money. The issues involved both domestic and international receipts of income and asset protection. Um, and ultimately, the, the government uh, made it a very high-profile case. I think the New York Times called it the biggest tax case since Leona Helmsley. Uh, they tried him in Ocala, Florida, which was 
uh, it was an all-white jury pool, so it was a rather unique jury environment. Even though Wes had never lived in Ocala, uh, never been to Ocala, in fact, until the trial. Wow. Uh, but he ultimately was acquitted of all the felony charges and acquitted of half the misdemeanor charges because they were able to see through the government's case. A lot of people do. Uh, tax minimization is as, uh, as old as American pie and as old as America, and there's nothing criminal about it. And the government, just the IRS, uh, because of their desperation for tax dollars, uh, is trying to treat as criminal things that just are not criminal. In fact, you don't want to give money to the IRS as long as you do it in the right lawful way. There's nothing criminal about it, but the government tries to treat it as such, uh, and we've been able to uh, to win a trial because there are ways to defend people, regardless of how high profile or low profile they may be, to take on the IRS and beat the IRS. It's not easy, but we've proven that you can do it. Well, let's talk about that. You know, someone's worst nightmare, they find themselves in, in some sort of legal battle with the, the IRS. What's the first thing they should do before they blow it? Don't talk to the IRS. Okay. I always tell people it's not the Army. You don't need to volunteer. The Volunteering anything is going to run your risk. You need to know what your end game is before you even start the game. So once the IRS initiates contact with you, that's the time to find the right counsel to give you the right strategies. Like, for example, a lot of people think, well, I can have my accountant represent me. Well, there's no privilege with your accountant. Anything you tell your accountant, anything you give your accountant, the IRS can go later seize and take and compel testimony. And it's frequently the case that we get involved with somebody who did made the mistake of trying to do it themselves or trying to hire a local attorney who's not familiar with these issues or go with their local accountant or they go with like a corporate attorney who's spent most of his time working for the government and sees the world through the eyes of the government uh, and then they end up in trouble and we have to try to bail them out midway through. So my view is to find competent tax counsel who understands both the civil and criminal side of the aisle from the get-go and somebody who has a proven track record of succeeding against the IRS. That's what you should have. Now here at Freedom Fest, uh, you and, and your partner, Mr. Bernhoft, are, are doing a session, I understand, uh, that you've uh called the New American Inquisition. Tell us about that. Sure. Really what's happening is because of the economic conditions in the United States and in Europe and issues relating to the uh, the financial economy and the rest, uh, what's happening is the, the government has an increasing desire and need to criminalize anybody who's successful uh, and to criminalize more and more of successful conduct. Their desperation for tax dollars is leading them to criminalize any kind of offshore investment. They're increasingly criminalizing offshore savings. They're increasingly criminalizing any kind of tax minimization strategy. So what's happening is you're going to see an increasing onslaught of criminal prosecutions, of, of civil audits, that uh, more so than has ever been done in the past. And so I think that's, in order to resist that, there are effective ways to resist it. But the first aspect is knowledge and awareness. People need to know that it's coming and that things that they've been accustomed to doing that really are innocent and, and not criminal are going to be seen as criminal by the government over the next five to ten years. Awesome. Thanks for the information for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you. Now we're going to meet the founder of the firm, Robert Bernhoff, who uh, is obviously also an attorney. And Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Robert. Pleasure to be here. It was great to hear Bob uh, kind of fill us in on a lot of what you guys do. But but let's step back a minute and, and talk about this specialty that you that, uh, you guys have, and it's kind of a unique practice. How did you uh, end up uh, where you are? Yeah, it is. Uh, the, the vast majority of federal criminal defense attorneys, particularly people that defend people against the IRS, are former IRS attorneys, uh, former U.S. attorneys, or former government prosecutors from D.C. Bob and I both come from a strong defense background. We've never worked for the IRS or for the government in any way, shape, or form. And it, it brings a certain different perspective. Um, we have a defense perspective through and through, whereas I think a lot of the federal criminal defense bar still have some system allegiances or loyalties that it's hard to 
purge oneself of. I mean, if you work for the government for 15, 20 years, you develop a particular perspective. And I think one of the things that's unique about our small boutique practice is it's a pure defense firm. All of our people have always been on the defense side. And I think that uh, makes a difference. And I also understand that your firm uh, has some unconventional methods maybe that other attorneys might not use when, when say, going after someone who's lost money in another jurisdiction. Yeah, we like to use uh, non-litigation uh, techniques. Um, there's a model that we've developed over the past decade or so and built on other people's good work where we engage former uh, federal investigators that are working private for us now and we develop a complete uh, dossier on all of the principal investment fraud players, the institutions that they're doing business with, the trusts, the corporations. We master all of those facts and then we make our approach to the investment fraud target um, and we call these non-litigation pressure techniques which can be more economical, more efficient for our clients and uh, less lengthy. So we try and go in and, and show the bad guys, show the investment fraudster that we know precisely how he's doing business, everywhere he's doing business, where he keeps his money, how he's kept his assets, he or she, and that uh, they need to make our clients whole or we'll go forward to the litigation stage and, and make that hurt bad for him. Now, how different is that depending on the jurisdiction that, that these folks are in? I mean, you guys work, uh, I think Bob said, 30 different countries. You've uh, engaged other counsel. And how does that, uh, how does it differ from, from location to location? It, it, it can differ greatly. Uh, we like to practice in the English Commonwealth jurisdictions like the United Kingdom and then all the Eastern Caribbean tax haven jurisdictions uh, because, as you know, Robert, English law is the uh, embodiment or well, our law is, uh, is predicated on English law. So we're real familiar with the rules of common law and equity uh, as United States lawyers. It gets a little bit more interesting when you're in civil law or continental law countries like France, Switzerland, and to some extent even some of the Channel Islands have incorporated some continental law principles. Uh, and there we rely on a network of skilled local counsel who can uh, brief us on the customs practices and peculiarities of their jurisdiction. Um, and then it's our job to create the overarching strategies and we rely upon high quality local counsel in the non-English jurisdictions to get the job done. Now, you know, Bob talked a little bit about uh, unraveling the, the situation when you're looking uh, at a case uh, maybe years later. On the proactive side, how do you make sure you're laying the right paper trail as you go into a transaction yeah. so if it were to blow up, we were covered? It's a great question, Robert, and I, I really tell people, um, get a really a talented, credentialed, well-referenced, certified public accountant. If you're an entrepreneur, a small business uh, person, you really need to have a talented CPA. I'm not trying. I'm not disdaining bookkeepers and non-CPA accountants, but the fact is, the extra training and the reliability and the reliance factor of a certified public accountant is important. And then make sure you're disclosing uh, fully and fairly all relevant tax financial information to that CPA. This provides you with a civil and God forbid if there's some criminal implications down the road, it gives you uh, a reliance defense. And it's good business. It's, it's sort of like um, a, a little bit of prevention is, is cheaper than that uh, couple of pounds of cure at the end of the day. So you hire that talented CPA. If you're not comfortable with your CPA, talk to your business friends, talk to your associates and colleagues, locate somebody who's doing the job, who's not breaking rules when they're doing your, their accounting for you, that's playing it reasonably straight, but also taking advantage of all of the leverage and the deductions and the, and the available items. So yeah. it's a, but that CPA is critical. That, uh, that is the person for a small business person that has to be there.
Now, you know, they say you can't fight City Hall, but really uh, that's kind of what you guys do. If someone's up against the government, I, I mean, I imagine they're just quaking in their boots. This is the worst thing ever. But in fact, just like any case, it's about finding out what the facts are and getting to it. I, I imagine that your clients aren't intimidated by going after the IRS or the government. You're obviously not. Oh, no, no. I, I love to fight City Hall. I have a problem with authority. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Sort sort of kidding. No, we we enjoy uh, we enjoy odds. We enjoy uh, beating the odds. We enjoy representing uh, small Davids and Daniels against the Goliaths of the world. It's exciting. Uh, the stakes are high. Our clients are indeed intimidated. The way we it's a power equation. Uh, the government has uh, vast resources, uh, intelligence information, and a network of attorneys and agents that they use. And we have to equalize that power equation through mastery of the facts and through using our talented team. And no, we don't back down from aggressive government prosecutions. We're going to defend our clients, we're going to draw the line, and we're going to protect their rights at the end of the day. All right, well, we sure appreciate your time. And uh, if someone has a question or they want to find out more about Bernhoff Law, what's the best way to get a hold of the firm? Yeah, website is probably the best. They can email to us directly, bernhofflaw.com. Uh, ordinarily, I'm in my administrative headquarters in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 414. 414- 276-3333. Uh, we can also meet West Coast people at our Malibu office or our Century City office in Los Angeles. All right, Robert, thanks for your time. Thank you, Robert. Pleasure. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys Radio Network. More from Freedom Fest when we return. I'm your host, Robert Helms. You put your money in the bank to keep it safe. But where does the bank put theirs? Life insurance. Did you know Wells Fargo increased its holdings in life insurance 400% from 2008 to 2009? Why? Liquidity, safety, tax benefits, and positive returns. Sound good? Let Paradigm Life show you how to profit from the creative use of one of the most stable financial products of all. It's not just for the mega wealthy. For a free report, send an email to life at realestateguysradio.com or visit beyourbank.com. Hi, I'm Steve Forbes. You're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Listen up. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. We are right in the middle of our broadcast from Freedom Fest in Las Vegas. Pretty interesting stuff for us. Yeah, it really is. These guys have uh, spent a lot of time thinking about their topics. They have a lot of passion on the subjects. Well, before we get back to the interviews, it is time to play Real Estate Trivia. It's your chance to win a prize by knowing the answer to today's trivia question. When you hear the question and know the answer, send us an email to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Com. Include the answer, of course, plus your name and mailing address so we can send you out your prize, an autographed copy of Equity Happens, Building Lifelong Wealth with Real Estate. That's our book on real estate investing. Before we give you this week's uh, trivia question, uh, last week on the show, uh, we had Jeff uh, Bilwak, and uh, we talked about uh, what he was doing, interesting stuff. Uh, and, of course, it's centered around a project he's doing in St. Kitts. And our trivia question was, what was St. Kitts called before it was St. Kitts? The answer, St. Christopher's. And some people still call it that. Here's our trivia question for this week. Name the first state to ratify the United States Constitution. Which was the first state to ratify the Constitution? Uh, You don't need the date. You just need the state. Send that with uh, your pertinent information to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. That's trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Now more from Freedom Fest. Welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. Thanks for tuning in today. We are in Freedom Fest, which is happening in Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, we are happy to talk with Steve Hotchberg, who has a very interesting uh, job, if you will. Steve, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, indeed. So there's a lot of talk about inflation, deflation. Where is it headed? What's going to happen? This is exactly what you specialize in doing. Tell us about that. 
Well, actually, uh, Robert Prechter, the president of our company, Elite Wave International, wrote a uh, New York Times bestseller back in 2002 called Conquer the Crash, How to Survive in a Deflationary Depression. And a lot of the uh, forecasts that he originally made in that book uh, are playing out just uh, as we speak. Isn't that amazing? Uh, and uh, real estate uh, topped out in 2005, as you know. We've actually had three great credit inflation peaks over the past 10 years. The first was in 2000, when many stock markets of the world stopped going up. The next was real estate, when real estate stopped going up in 2005. Uh, and the last one was commodities in 2008. Uh, all of them are down from the levels that they attained at their high. And what we're seeing is a contraction in the supply of credit. Creditors are unwilling to lend. Yep. And we're seeing debtors unwilling to take on more debt so that the uh, level of debt is contracting. And that has been more than offsetting the Fed's efforts to try to reinflate. There's simply too much credit right now in society that is deflating, and it's overwhelming the Fed's ability to inflate, and that's why we're in a deflationary environment. We don't think it's done yet. Okay, so uh, getting out the crystal ball, which is kind of what you guys do, well, what do you think the next year, 18 months, is going to look like in terms of that? I think, uh, and, and, I, and I don't say this flippantly or lightly, I think we are on the precipice of uh, one of the greatest uh, declines that we've seen in, in the stock market uh, probably in our lifetime. Uh, we use the Elliott Wave model to help forecast where we are within the progression of these movements. Uh, and it basically, it uh, shows that crowd psychology's pattern. It's not a random event. It's not reacting to news. It doesn't have a fixed periodicity, but it moves three steps forward and two steps back. And if you can ascertain where you are within the pattern, it implies something about the future. We've been pretty good about where we are in the pattern, and that tells us we're on the verge of a pretty big decline. So what we're telling our subscribers is, right now, safety pays. There's no downside in safety. Uh, Short-term treasury bills, which give you literally no income, maybe half to 1%, uh, have zero risk. And well, this is an important concept. I, yes. I want to visit this for a minute because, obviously, you understand it very much. So listeners to the program may not understand why would somebody invest in something that has virtually zero return. But the concept is the money's got to go somewhere. And we think it's going into cash. In fact, if you look at returns over the last 10 years from the last day in 1999 to the present, uh, three-month T-bills have returned over 30%, far outperforming equities, uh, outperforming commodities, some commodities, uh, and pretty much real estate too, given the downturn that we've seen. Although uh, you can make a case that some pockets are, are stronger than the others. Um, right now, safety sells and, and no one wants money, and no one wants cash right now. They're all looking for the next thing to buy. Right. And uh, until that optimism or that hope gets wrung out of the market, we still think we're in a downtrend. Uh, Bob Prechter coined a phrase, a number, I think it was a couple of year, uh, years ago, he said uh, that just as bull markets climb a wall of worry, bear markets descend a slope of hope. And each rally we've seen have, has, has generated hope that it's the bottom. And usually when you get to a bottom, there is no hope. There's just bleak pessimism. When we get to that level, we'll know it and hopefully we'll be able to step in and pick up some good values at that point. Well, there you go. And I think the big thing is trying to figure out when we're there. And as you say, you're, you're not going to get hurt by playing it safe in this kind of a market. Look, if we're wrong, the worst you'll do is earn a half to 1% on your money. And you'll have to buy in to a market that's higher than it is now. But if we're right, 
we're going to save your financial future. So right now, we're, we're, we're saying safety pays, there's no downside, uh, and we look for a big market decline coming up. All right, Steve, I know people are going to be very interested in uh, how you, how they find out uh, this information. You mentioned the newsletter. How is uh, how does that work, and how do they get a hold of, uh, of you? It's very simple. Come to our website, www.elliotwave.com. Elliot Wave is one word, and there's two L's and two T's in Elliot. So it's elliotwave.com. You can sign up for our newsletter, read. We have a ton of free stuff, free courses on Elliott Wave Analysis. It's a great website just to click around on. You will learn something you didn't know before you got there, that's for sure. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for being on the program. Well, thanks for having me. My goodness, we have something different to share with you. We've been here at Freedom Fest 2010 and uh, been next to a booth uh, by the Seasteading uh, Institute. And this is a fascinating bit of real estate we're going to talk about, probably something you haven't heard about, and uh, they're on the cutting edge of, of what's going on. I'd like to introduce you to Patry Friedman. How are you? Great. Now, tell us about the Seasteading Institute. Well, we're a real estate project, but a very unusual real estate project. We want to give the lie to Mark Twain, who said, buy land, they've stopped making it. So our idea is to build new land in the oceans, because the oceans are the only place on Earth that aren't claimed by existing governments. And that means, it doesn't mean that you can go out there and have anarchy. Maybe you could, but that's not what we want. It means that there's a potential business opportunity in going out there and building land with government on it, a government that might be better than the governments that we have on land and competing with existing countries by being a better place to live and a better place to do business. So picture the creation of a city out in the middle of the ocean. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Yep, that's exactly it. Now there was a, correct me if I'm wrong, you probably know about this, a sovereign nation that was built on an oil platform or, or something. Yeah, that you're talking about Sealand, which is off the coast of Britain. It was an abandoned anti-aircraft radar platform. And they had a couple of businesses on there. One was a pirate radio business, which worked out really well. And the other was a data haven, which worked out not so well. And it's a kind of a small platform and couldn't really be expanded because the British territorial waters have expanded and now include it. Um, but it's an interesting precedent. They chose the route of starting out by declaring independence and saying they were a sovereign nation and issuing passports, which are you know nice collectible items, but nobody accepts. We believe more into fitting into the existing system of international law as much as we can and not doing the radical stuff until we're really big. So the premise of, of this is that there's lots of ocean, there's lots of place to go. As uh, real estate developers, we're often interested in unique ways to uh, capitalize, obviously, but you're a nonprofit organization trying to really uh, lead the cause. What is it that, that you need? How can people help? How can people get involved? Well, we need the universal ingredient for making anything happen, which is money. Yeah. Um, and we're a five one C three nonprofit. And what we're doing right now is we're raising funds and doing the basic research to prove that this can happen. And then later we'll turn things over to entrepreneurs who start for-profit companies actually building and operating this real estate so that you could have a timeshare apartment there. Now you can't see this, but uh, we're looking at uh, some amazing uh, artists' renditions of, uh, of some projects as simple as your own house all the way up to what look like mini cities. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Check out our website, seasteading.org. We've got all of these beautiful images of what this could look like. Well, it's cutting edge. You heard it here first, and uh, Patrick, we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. You can go to the uh, Seasteading Institute's website at C, that's like the C, Seasteading, S-T-E-A-D-I-N-G, dot org, and uh, find out more. I'm your host, Robert Helms, in our 13th year of broadcasting. We are at the 
Freedom Fest for the first time in Las Vegas, Nevada. This is the seventh year they've been doing it, and people travel not only from all over the U.S., but from all over the world to be here. I'd like to introduce you to Leon Lowe, who is uh, from South Africa. Welcome, Leon. Robert, it's good to be with you. Hi. What a trip. This is a, a, a long way away. Well, you know, uh, in pursuit of freedom, one has to travel. So being at the Freedom Fest, uh, I, my work in South Africa is promoting freedom in Africa. And that's what we do. And I meet kindred spirits here and get ideas. And my main reason for being here is to get the work we're doing financed and funded. So I'm doing funding here seeking support for our work. Now your organization is called the Free Market Foundation of uh, so Southern Africa and uh, what is the what is the need? What is it that uh, you're trying to get out in terms of, uh, of the word? Well in Africa which is the only region on earth sub-Saharan or black Africa that got poorer during the last 30 years of the 20th century uh, suddenly it started being the region growing the fastest of all regions. Now, why the change? Why did black Africa get poorer? Many people thought it was because it was black, that there was something about Africans that they were inherently or genetically incapable of prospering. Uh, now all of a sudden people have to say, well, why is it growing faster than anywhere else? Because this uh, needs explaining. And the answer to that is really very, very simple. Uh, uh, from the late 1990s, African economies, which had followed communist and socialist policies mostly, not all, uh, were, and stagnated and got poorer, uh, started following pro-market policies. They started reforming by introducing property rights, privatizing or giving title in land to the owners, getting land markets established, turning land from dead or idle capital into dynamic and living and financially productive capital. Uh, once people have land and real estate, they become what, what uh, banks call bankable. Yep. And not, ne not necessarily mortgaging, but just the mere fact that they have liquid land that can be traded and let and sold and, and mortgaged uh, means that they, they can do estate management and they can uh, sell them insurance policies and there's a whole range of financial packages and policies, credit cards, whatever, uh, bank accounts that people then qualify for. So, uh, a few African countries have started moving towards uh, the, the model of capitalism, in, including, or I might say especially, regarding real estate, and uh, it's having the predictable consequences of prosperity for all, and it turns out that black people in Africa are just like anyone anywhere in the world, and if you give them freedom and, and, and property rights and the rule of law, uh, they are just as prosperous as Chinese or Americans or Jews or whoever else. And that what matters more than other factors, I'm not saying other factors are irrelevant, you know, for example, uh, Protestants outperform Catholics on average, but the differences are very small. The big differences are the economic system and, and the biggest single component of that is the real estate markets and the right to own real estate. So I would say to all your listeners, watch this space. Uh, Africa, South Africa and a few other countries in Africa, Ghana for example, Uganda, Mozambique, these are countries that were very socialistic and are now have perhaps the world's best real estate investment opportunities. I, I cannot think of anywhere else that has better and the worst of all country in Africa is, of course, Zimbabwe. Strangely enough, that is what makes it probably the best single place in the world in which to invest in real estate. 
where you can buy an acre for a dollar. Right. And uh, that sounds like it might be on sale. Well, let's talk for a minute about uh, the fact that property rights are not universal. And that's really what we're what you guys are out to help spread the word No, about. on the contrary, they're very rare. Your property rights are rare, especially if you mean by property rights in real estate. Yes. Uh, property, all sorts of property rights, rights to, to assets of all kinds, uh, equities, investments, intellectual uh, money, property. intellectual property, uh, you know, publications, whatever. Uh, all sorts of property rights are critical, and they are rare in every country, including this country, America, yep. great and marvelous as it is. Property rights are extremely circumscribed and limited by all sorts of very dubious and questionable laws that go against the rule of law, uh, which is meant to be hallowed and followed, but is in fact breached more often than followed. Uh, so that is rare, and countries, even with the degree of property rights, especially in real estate that you have in the United States, are in the small minority. The vast majority of countries do not uh, have markets in real estate. They do not protect real estate rights. They do not acknowledge them. People live on government-owned land as serfs of the government and, and are the victims of eminent domain. And in the United States, uh, you have a, it's not as bad as elsewhere. It's not perfect, but it's a lot better. But we do need to understand that the work we are doing which is to try to extend the concept of property rights to countries that, where the term is simply not even known. And we are successfully doing so, and we think therefore, you know, we, we're proud of the fact that we are making changes to the real quality of life of many millions of people. And we like to think for your listeners, creating opportunities for investment that will come once in their lifetime, and they, they better look into them. Boy, absolutely. You know, you when when any uh, restriction to trade is lifted, which your organization is helping to do, there is opportunity. And for real estate investors, uh, this is something to pay attention to. Uh, and you can help out too. So, Leon, if someone wants to, to know more, they want to know how they can help, they want to know what you guys are doing, what's the best way to uh, find out? Well, uh, you can contact us. Uh, obviously, you can visit our website, which is www free market foundation all one word lowercase free market foundation.com or our email address is fmf for free market foundation at mweb mweb dot co dot za which is south africa's email address uh, or uh, contact the free market foundation you can just search it obviously google free market foundation or google my name leon low l-e-o-n-l-o-u-w uh, which is dutch for low and uh, and and our phone number in south africa is is plus two seven uh, for south africa one one for the city eight eight four zero two seven zero that is two seven one one eight eight four zero two seven zero and we would love to hear from you get involved in 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 you know really one of the most exciting and greatest revolutions that will happen in in your lifetime leah we sure appreciate uh, your time and uh, your incredible dedication to your cause of traveling all the way from south africa great to have you on the show yeah it's my pleasure thanks for having me as your guest you bet you're tuned to the real estate guys radio network more when we come back from freedom fest 2010 i'm your host robert helms
Are you upside down in your home or investment property? Would you like to refinance but can't? Are you tired of dipping into your savings or credit cards just to make the mortgage payments? If you read the newspapers, you know you're not alone. But is the government going to save you? Don't count on it. If you want to take charge of your own personal bailout program, then you need to find out which loan workout options are available to you. To help you, the Real Estate Guys have written an 18-page report, What You Must Know Before Attempting a Loan Workout. Best of all, you can have it for free. How's that for economic stimulus? To get yours, simply email your request to workout at realestateguysradio.com. That's workout at realestateguysradio.com. Hope is not a strategy. If you need help with problem mortgages, read What You Must Know Before Attempting a Loan Workout. Knowledge is power. Send your request to workout at realestateguysradio.com. Hi, this is Garrett Sutton, Rich Dad's advisor. Remember, equity happens, and you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. And welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms. We are in Las Vegas, Nevada at Freedom Fest 2010. And it is our pleasure to introduce you to uh, the author of a great book, Unleash Your IRA. Uh, Terry Coxon is with us. Hey, Terry. Hello, Robert. Hey, thanks for being here. A pleasure. Now, we have uh, talked on our show for a long time about the power of the self-directed IRA. And this is something that uh, you know very well. And In fact, tell us about, uh, about Unleash Your IRA and, and uh, the, the reason behind writing this book. Well, self-directed IRA is a powerful concept, but you can take it a step further and get hands-on control of your IRA investments. The way you do that is to have just one asset inside your IRA. You have a limited liability company, or an LLC, that you manage. So on day one, you talk to your custodian one time. You talk to your custodian about putting a limited liability company inside the IRA. From then on, you manage the IRA and you have full discretion and the power to act promptly on your own without ever needing to go back to the custodian to have the custodian review or approve an investment or execute any further documents. Well, this you sounds like uh, it's going to answer uh, one of the big objections people have, which is my custodian takes so long to, to react and get the paperwork done and all that kind of stuff that I missed the opportunity. Yes, with an ordinary self-directed IRA, your custodian can be a real deal killer. The custodian can get in the way, not because it's not trying hard, but because it's naturally cautious, it knows it has a fiduciary responsibility, it has established procedures, steps to follow long checklist to uh, refer to and so while you're waiting for the custodian of an ordinary self-directed IRA to get the job done your big opportunity can grow little legs and walk away from you. Well and again if you have an IRA where you're invested in say three or four different things then you've got a buy direct or sell direct letter to your custodian for every one of those different investments what you're saying is all those investments can be inside the single LLC. That's right your IRA will have just one asset inside it. That's the limited liability company. From there on, the limited liability company can have as many different investments as you think are appropriate. So I guess my question is, how is this not self-dealing? It's not self-dealing because as manager of your IRA's LLC, you work for free. You cannot pay yourself any fees or any salaries as manager of the IRA. Okay. 
And uh, I guess the, probably the, the biggest thing is making sure that uh, your paper trail is covered, and that's uh, what the folks at uh, PassportIRA.com do. Tell us about, uh, about Passport IRA and how they can help. Well, Passport IRA provides a complete service for anyone who wants to get full investment freedom for his IRA. You start by visiting our website. There you can acquire a copy of Unleash Your IRA, which in uh, maybe 30 minutes reading time will make you a minor expert on the topic <laughs> of open opportunity IRAs. And then from there, there on, the materials lead you to uh, our website again where you can request a free consultation and then get a turnkey service for yourself. So many people do not understand the power they have in their retirement account. They're led to believe that the only thing they can invest in is whatever is put in front of them by their company, but there's so much more opportunity if you just get educated. And, of course, your book helps do that, and uh, we appreciate uh, the fact that you took the time to write it. Well, I, I enjoyed writing it because I learned so much by writing it. Isn't it true? Uh, a year ago, if you'd said, let's talk about IRAs, I would have thought, do we really have to? It seemed like such a dull, boring topic. IRAs are good. You get tax deferral. But it seemed like a simple story and uh, a bit of a straitjacket as well. But when I investigated the topic and learned more about it, I discovered that simply by putting a limited liability company inside your IRA, you can acquire enormous freedom to choose the kind of investment you want. You can pour almost all of your financial life into your IRA where it operates in a in a tax-free zone you turn your IRA into your own personal tax haven it really is close to miraculous what you can accomplish the book is called unleash your IRA Terry Coxon is the author you can get a copy by going to passportira.com and uh, learn more about what they do as well Terry thanks so much for being on the program Robert thank you we're Freedom Fest 2010 in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada. It is amazing uh, what we're learning why we're here. Uh, joining us now, uh, a gentleman who has uh, been around uh, the financial industry for a long, long time, uh, started the first gold IRA. He's got a great background, writes three newsletters now. Please welcome to the program, Ron Holland. Hey, Ron. Good to be here. Hey, you've got uh, some specific knowledge you wanted to pick your uh, brain at. There's a, there's a lot of talk about uh, the government uh, kind of getting involved here with people's uh, IRAs and, and all that. I know you have uh, something to say about that. Well, when it, whenever the government says they want to help you, you know, you know they're out to get your wealth. Right. Uh, I wrote a book back in the early 90s, 93, uh, about the government attack on retirement plans and how they might confiscate them at some point in time in the future. When the Republicans got back in, that held back for a while. But now, with the new mandatory retirement plan, the mandatory IRA that the Obama administration is pushing, I think it's the beginning of an attack and the ultimate confiscation of retirement plans, IRAs, of very large, wealthy people. If you have under 250000 you don't have any risk. If you have more of that in a retirement plan, there's a substantial amount of risk because we have a government broke and hungry for revenue, and they're going to get it through taxes of productive working Americans. You know, our uh, audience, mostly, of course, real estate investors, a lot of folks realize that uh, you can own uh, real estate and uh, real estate syndications and a lot of different investments uh, inside a, a retirement sure. uh, account, and, and yet most people, they, they don't think about the retirement account. It's something they're going to need years and years from now, and yet it's a big chunk of money, isn't it? Well, it was a big chunk of money, <laughs> yeah. you know, with the crash and what's happened, and now we, we're going back into a double dip. Yep. Uh, it really has taken a toll on retirement plans 
And uh, but yeah, real estate is a is a good it's it's a real opportunity right now. It's a good option. Basically, the kind of retirement plan a self-directed IRA, if you're going the IRA route, that you would put real estate into, you could put uh, offshore annuities uh, in in hard currencies like the Swiss franc. Uh, you can do offshore variable annuities and, and other products that historically have been a good hedge against inflation. And, you know, as you're looking out there on the horizon as an investor, the seas are changing. It's very different. People have a lot of different opinions in this room about uh, what they should be doing and, and so forth. And, and to have uh, one more uh, strike against us, if you will, with uh, the government eye in this part of our investment portfolio, that's, uh, that's a little scary. Well, you know, the government's going to raise a lot of revenue. They're working on the VAT. They're going to means test wealthy Americans out of their promised and guaranteed Social Security benefits. They're going to tax and penalize Americans with large amounts in retirement plans. And, of course, the Bush tax cuts are going away. So we have a desperate government hungry for revenue. And if there's money there, they're going to figure out a way to make money on it. They can't afford to wait till people retire to generate some income off all of the tax-divert assets. Now, and this is the year that, of course, you can uh, convert uh, to a Roth IRA from a, tr a traditional IRA. Do you think that's a, an opportunity for anybody, or is that just for the guy who's only got a few thousand dollars in the IRA? You know, IRA? I get that question a lot, and uh, if you've interviewed Terry, I hope you have, uh, he and I would probably disagree on it. We do a lot of writing together. I think a Roth is, uh, is no protection from uh, future taxes and confiscation. I mean, with a Roth, what you've got is, in fact, you're paying your your taxes now, yep. and then you get, they claim you'll get to take it uh, tax-free well, in the future. that's what you were told, right? Well, so, so you're, they've, they've already broken so many, so many promises and guarantees. With a Roth, you're just trusting them to break one more. I think people with large amounts in Roths, not with 50 or 100,000, will find in addition to everything else, there'll be excess withdrawal penalties, excess taxes on people who have large Roths. Even though they've already paid the taxes, they'll end up paying it again. It may be through a VAT. It may be through the new transaction thing they're talking about yeah. today. But uh, I fear if you have a lot of money in a retirement plan, they're going to do their best to squeeze as much out of it as they can through fees, uh, penalties, and taxes. Well, in fact, conversion from a traditional to a Roth creates tax today. Today. Yeah, so there you go. All right, Ron, well, this has been a great okay. chance to get to pick your brain a little bit. If someone wants to subscribe to one of those newsletters we talked about, how do they do that? Well, the easiest way to catch me is probably ron.holland at bfi-consulting.com. That's the easiest way. All right. Well, we okay. appreciate uh, your time today, Great. and thanks for being Freedom Fest. Take care. Las Vegas, Nevada is where we are this week at Freedom Fest. I'd like to introduce you to uh, an economist and author, Terry Easton, who has a brand-new book out called Refounding America, a field manual for patriot activists. Terry, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. So a lot of books out. This looks really awesome. Tell me why uh, this information needs to be heard. You know, we looked around a couple of years ago. I wrote an article uh, for human events. I, I, I write for human events. And... Uh, and I said, my God, what's going on in this country? Things are going to hell in a handbasket. Economically, we're having crisis after crisis. People are printing money like they're crazy, like there's no tomorrow. And the way they keep printing it, there may eventually be no tomorrow. Real estate markets are collapsing, et cetera. What can people do to take back America? I mean, people, just a normal average person who, you know, who says, I've had a good life. Things are quiet. I don't want to be involved in politics. I've got my business. I've got my family. Well, unfortunately, we don't have that luxury anymore. It's all politics. 
And the problem is that the progressives have been working for 100 years to systematically step by step, it's like water torture, step by step, whittle away our personal freedoms, both our personal liberties, the ability for the government, the, the people in control, the big brother and, uh, and, uh, and the nanny state to, uh, to tell you what to do and how to live your life, except, of course, Congress exempts themselves from these laws. Well, sure. You know, we pay Social Security, but as you know, they're exempt from paying Social Security. Gosh, I'd, how can I get that job? Oh, I know. Get elected yeah. and then get reelected forever. So the problem is what happens, it's fine now for the next year or two when deflation is, is, is happening, the banks are afraid to lend the money and the Federal Reserve is bribing them to put it back into their own coffers. What happens when they keep the next ballot, next ballot, next ballot? Eventually the inflation monster, it ain't a genie, is going to come roaring out of the bottle. And here we are back with Jimmy Carter's days when home loans cost 18%, when uh, uh, the gas lines were everywhere, where it was a disaster. Well, it ain't going to be 18% this time. It's going to be a lot more than that, and not for a year or two. So what can you do, for example, to protect yourself under those conditions? And then also, how can you make change? How can you get out there and physically reach people on the Internet and reach your neighbors and your relatives and the other people who are so-called progressives and get them to think in a new way so we can take back America in this coming cycle in, uh, in November. Well, you know, I think with what's happened, people are waking up a little bit. More people are interested today than probably would have been even five or ten years ago. People couldn't be bothered, but, you know, maybe the silver lining in some of this is that people are going, wait a minute, it, it does matter to me, and, and you're hitting me, you know, right where it counts, so I'm, I'm going to pay a little more attention. If I had money and I were, I were concerned about the future, and we do, of course, what would I do with my investments right now? As an example, yep. would, I, would I buy stocks and bonds? Well, Probably a little bit, but not a lot. Would I buy commodities? You know, that's another crapshoot. Maybe a little bit, not a lot. I'd certainly buy some gold coins and put them away. But what happens when inflation hits 18, 20, 25% a year? What can you see as an asset to protect yourself? You could probably buy some oil futures because eventually we'll have another war and the price of oil will go to. You know, $200, $300 a barrel. Of course, I've been saying that for a few years. I'm amazed <laughs> that the war hasn't happened yet. Yep. It's funny, talking, just thinking about real estate. And uh, real estate is probably one of those few assets which does well in inflation, especially if you buy something uh, that's been beaten up in a market that's down. The market we're in. Las Vegas is an incredible market. Here yeah. you are where the market is down 50% in the past two or three years. Uh, and yet, when I was here two years ago, there were building cranes everywhere, and the, the, the place was dying. Now suddenly, yeah. the casinos are full, the airports are full. We flew on a plane, every seat taken. And the real estate is still down 50%. And now you can get 4% loans for 30 years. My God. Could it go down 20% more? Of course it could. But, you know, you can't ever buy at the The only people who ever buy at the bottom and sell at the top, they're, they're pigs. Right. That doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work. So, so I'm not trying to promote real estate per se because, I, you know, I don't have a, a dog in that. that no, that's that. our job. Okay. That's good. <laughs> but it, it, make, it makes sense rationally yeah. because, as they say in Hong Kong, they're not making any more of it. Well, it's true. You know, if you think about it, if we're going to see a situation where, depending on, I mean, we've heard people talking about the currency going to zero and inflation going up and deflate, whatever it is, if what you own is an asset that has some intrinsic value, which we believe real estate does, then you're going to be better off than the guy that has paper share certificates of a company that used to exist. That's right, except whatever you do, don't buy it in San Francisco or New York where it's, you know, been multiplied. By the way, why is real estate so expensive, for example, in San Francisco as compared to, say, Florida or Texas? And the answer is, very simple. You can't buy anymore. Why yeah. can't you buy anymore? The answer is the government has made laws which make it illegal for you to buy more real estate. 
This is the totally art. Why does a house in California in San Francisco cost, say, for a four thousand square foot house, three million dollars, when you can buy a four thousand square foot house for three hundred thousand dollars, brand new or built two years ago in other markets? Right. And the answer is a government manipulation of the market. So you want to be careful whenever you get involved in any kind of investment that that you understand that the investments you're making now are really politically driven. And again, that comes back obviously to the book, which is. Refounding America, and you know our associated website, refoundingamericabook.com, and it is how how you now have to be involved to protect yourself from these people uh, who would who would literally strip you of your wealth and your assets, and and wind up uh, uh, not thanking you in the process, wind up demanding that it's their duty and right to uh, to take your assets away. I mean, it's, it's it's a crazy business. Well, you know what? It's also the thing I like about this book. It's not a thousand pages like a lot of the books that we see today out on the, the economy. I mean, this is a book you can get through pretty quickly uh, in pretty basic language and uh, certainly couldn't hurt to read it. No, it's, it's a field manual. It's how to do these things step by step. You know, how do you, how do you, for example, here's a secret, pass this on. Create five different blog identities on the internet and blog on the progressive sites, not on the friend sites. Go after uh, Huntington, Huffington Post, sorry, dot com, and they all have these wacky ideas that they're putting out comment about it. If yeah. we had 100,000 people writing five email uh, blogs a day, we'd have half a million people. That would get the attention of the mainstream media who tends to read that stuff. And it would hopefully move the direction. Now, look, we've got a, an election in November. I'm, you know, I'm not rooting for the Republicans. I'll vote for a Democrat, Independent, Republican as long as he says I'm in favor of you instead of the favor of the state. I want to increase freedom. I want to increase free market. I want to increase the ability for you to become wealthy. I want to get the government regulations out of everybody's hair. It doesn't matter who they are. In November, we're going to replace Twiddledee with Twiddledummer. But at least the Republicans, when they win, and hopefully they will, the, re the House and the Senate, at least you have a checkmate mechanism. We've got the Democrats on one side. And it turns out that, that those kinds of governments that have sclerosis of the of, of the voting pen yes. are the best of all Isn't and, it true? and American people know that yeah I, you know the change nobody expected this kind of change is one of the things he never saw said he never told anybody what the change was well they said change was coming they just didn't tell you how what yeah yeah so we have a real serious problem honestly in the next couple of years we are still in the greater depression too um, we're not out of the recession NBER which sets the uh, tone for that has said nope um, uh, that the, the professional cons organization which analyzes uh, when recessions start and stop uh, we are going to have as far as we can see a, a double debt recession you put that in quotes that's what the mainstream media says and you know if that happens in in January February March of next year after the new Congress is sworn in yep. what do you do well again you you try to protect your assets as best you can. All right. Well, you're certainly uh, doing your part, Terry, by getting the word out there. The book is called Refounding America, a field manual for patriot activists by Terry Easton and Ashton Ellis. Look it up at refoundingamericabook.com. Terry, thanks so much for sharing some thoughts with us today. Pleasure being with you. And good luck, by the way. Thank you so much. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys Radio Network. More from Freedom Fest when we come back. I'm your host, Robert Helms. 
Are you ready to profit in paradise? Hi, it's Robert Helms. And if you think real estate investing means tenants, toilets, and termites, think again. Located just a short plane ride from the U.S., a virtually untouched paradise awaits. The beautiful country of Belize. When you go to Belize with the Real Estate Guys, you'll spend four fabulous days discovering one of the most intriguing real estate markets I've ever seen. With its jungle rainforests, pristine beaches, and 81-degree turquoise water, Belize is one of the most beautiful places on Earth. Plus, it's considered one of the top seven tax havens in the world. And why U.S. real estate continues to drop, Belize property is on the rise, and many experts think the best is yet to come. But don't just take my word for it. Come experience Belize firsthand at our upcoming investor field trip. When you join us, you'll discover the many reasons we love Belize, like tremendously undervalued beachfront land, super low taxes, ease of doing business, and so much more. Get the details at realestateguysradio.com. Just click on events. See paradise for yourself. Click events at realestateguysradio.com, and I'll see you in beautiful Belize. real estate investment advice right in your mailbox. Sign up for the free Real Estate Guys newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. Wow, what a whole bunch of interesting, interesting stuff to uh, digest, don't you think, Russell Gray? It was great, you know, just going around the floor, talking to everybody, and then getting a chance to capture a lot of those conversations for our listeners. I think it's a great, great opportunity. Yeah, and uh, one of the folks who we were able to interview that you didn't get to hear from today, you will next week on this program. We were told we'd have 10 minutes with him. Instead, uh, we had over a half an hour with Peter Schiff. Yeah, and the thing that's awesome about Peter Schiff, if you don't know who he is, this is a guy who's probably one of maybe two two or three people in the world that accurately predicted the real estate and mortgage crash for the right reasons and put it in writing. Yeah, amazing stuff. And uh, you're going to enjoy the interview next week with Peter Schiff. A uh, very, very uh, interesting guy in lots of ways. And uh, we're going to tell you more next week. So tune in to the program. Big thanks to uh, our sponsors for making the show possible, to our engineers for helping uh, get it on the air, uh, and to you, our listeners. Uh, if you made it through this entire show, we uh, sure appreciate you. And we'll see you next week on The Real Estate Guys, where we'll make some equity happen. If you're like me and thousands of others, you know that the Real Estate Guys radio show is a great source for quality content about investing in real estate. But did you know that they also have a book? I just finished reading their book, Equity Happens, and I was blown away by how much I learned. If you're ready to create sustainable wealth through real estate, you need to get Equity Happens. You'll learn, just as I did, about what it takes to prosper in the real estate industry. So don't wait. Make Equity Happen to you. Order your copy today at equityhappens.com.